get to today we're gonna start with a bit of a chat about TikTok and social media regulation and how that impacts your business in just a moment our profile today is a family business but a really theatrical uh, impressive family business they go all over the world to design theaters and uh, and entertainment venues for big acts like Katy Perry Celine Dion Adele and others we'll be speaking with Olivier Bertium Berger and Olivier is with Sino Plus so a Montreal based company that um, like so many in entertainment and tech uh, have been uh, going global with uh, with their talent. Yeah, Montreal continues to be a hotbed. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, I guess, what gets focused on is the technology side. But our contribution to the entertainment segment as well is phenomenal. It's, you know, it's not just Cirque du Soleil and it's not just Silencio. And as we'll see from our guests coming forward, there's a massive impact around the world in, in the work that they're doing uh, from I was going to say behind the scenes, but really it is the scene. So uh, we will uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, sounds like they got some introductions as well from uh, their clients at Cirque du Soleil and, and elsewhere who who opened doors up really for, for Quebec entrepreneurs. That's a side story as well. Yeah. Um, we'll also we'll talk about uh, tax deadline season, of course, a big one uh, for BDO to remind all uh, clients about the, the trust tax deadline is what we'll get to today with, with Peter Joseph Moreta's tax partner at BDO, um, the capital gains exemption, uh, as well as the transfer of businesses from first to second generation that is on the way. But first, as usual, current events. And lately, Mike, um, a lot of talk about media and social media, especially uh, in recent days with TikTok, of course, being banned by the federal government. We kind of saw this coming. I mean, a lot of organizations were doing it privately anyway, especially in the States and in governments around the world. Um, I, I sent out a memo to some clients that you received. And in that memo, I, I explained uh, that basically at this point, in, as far as your IT processes, a lot of people are treating TikTok as malware. So you remember those scammy little programs that spy on your mm-hmm. computer and all that, you know, in the old, in the good old days, we, we managed to block most of those out with Norton and McAfee and other uh, um, uh, programs Antiviral. like that, but they're getting more sophisticated and some of them are social networks. And so you have to be very conscious about the marketing tools that we use on a regular basis and why these banal videos, these fun videos, can actually uh, imply a massive and uh, potentially problematic transfer of data from your business to who knows, who anywhere. Yeah, this is really a, a hot topic. You know, when, when, when you can define something as malware or spyware, you know, the names in and of itself told you exactly what the problem was. I mean, now you're getting into areas where you're talking about mainstream environments. Uh, you're talking about TikTok. You're talking about, you know, taking what appear to be legitimate businesses or legitimate apps or legitimate, you know, freedom of speech uh, and, and and start starting to create a concern overall. And, and I think part of the problem here lies in you know, TikTok is probably the biggest and the best example at this point, but this is going to come to a discussion at some point of, you know, where is, where's that line between freedom of speech and, uh, you know, the best interests of a company or a society or a government or whatever that scenario is. And I think that's probably where we're headed on this. And, and, and if we take a look over the last few weeks at, you know, why countries moved away from banning uh, TikTok is, you know, TikTok, as some people may know, is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And many governments and corporations have been looking to ban it, or at least its access, saying that they may endanger sensitive user data. 
the White House has told federal agencies a few weeks ago that it had 30 days to delete the app. Canada and the executive arm of the EU have done the same thing, has to be dropped from your official devices. And as, and as recently as March 2nd, the House committee in the U.S. backed an even more extreme step, voting to advance legislation that would allow the president to ban TikTok na nationwide. Uh, I, I can't even begin to think of what kind of commentary is going to come out of uh, out of the U.S. Um, because let's say that this was not a Chinese-owned company. Uh, would, would there be the same push? And I think this is where the problem is going to start coming in. You're going to get this, this, this cultural or country-specific uh, behind the scenes going on and not necessarily from just the company itself. And I, and, and I fear that, you know, like the errant wind balloons that floated over Canada and the U.S. a little while ago, uh, which we were guaranteed were not spy data gathering devices, uh, the U.S. government in particular sees TikTok as a massive intelligence gathering operation. And again, the fear lies in the Chinese government's power over corporate China to call upon the Chinese companies if when they chose to do so. You know, if this was a Canadian-based company, would we be having the same conversation? And, and not trying to be political here, but this has a political undertone to it. It opens up an interesting conversation about all social networks and, and where your data is going. And often we choose those uh, convenient sign-in buttons, you know, from Google, Facebook, or, or Apple. And uh, the second you hit that button, you should know that your data is being transferred. Uh, could be a foreign government. It could be private data brokers who are selling to Lord knows who, uh, they may sell your data to law enforcement agencies. That's been known to happen. Um, there's You're only limited by your imagination in terms of where the data goes. And so the, the, the best thing to do is to not give the machine, give the, the system, the network, uh, any data which is sensitive or proprietary. If you are transferring any sensitive documentation through uh, these uh, social networks or uh, publicly available uh, drives or email servers, well, I mean, you have to know that there's a remote chance that that, that might be, be made public one day. If you have an invention, if you have a proprietary technology, transferring that over some of these platforms um, may be a risky endeavor. Yeah, most definitely, Dan. I think the, uh, you know, the transfer of, of, of data, a trade secrets, uh, and other kinds of secrets, I think, are really the basis behind the pressure that we're seeing from corporate Canada and America or corporate Europe, as well as the government, is a move away from uh, allowing people the choice. Um, and, and, and let's be honest, as humans, we're not terribly reliable. And, and our moments of weakness are, are, are frequent. I mean, we put locks on our doors in case, you know, somebody wants in. Well, what did we do when we... we put automatic locks so when you left nobody could walk in behind you so in case you forgot to lock the door well very similar in these situations too i mean we're human we forget there are things on our mind we're going in 400 different directions how many people have clicked on an email they shouldn't have how many people have clicked on a sign-in button that they shouldn't have and boom before you know it uh, you know think somebody's taken advantage of the situation the other thing from a marketing point of view, um, Mike, that I want to point out, we, we do content marketing, of course. And so one thing that I've mentioned is some people say to me, well, uh, do I have a TikTok strategy? And I say, no, you do not have a tick, don't have a TikTok strategy. You can have a video strategy and you can apply that video strategy on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook video, Twitter, even uh, LinkedIn now has a great live uh, webinar feature. There is a number of ways to apply your video strategy to, uh, to do good content marketing and PR, you do not need to have a TikTok-focused strategy. It's not necessarily the way uh, businesses are, are, are made. 
And if you put all your eggs in that basket, right, if you put all your eggs in one social media basket and then they tweak the algorithm and then you disappear, right? And then then you're not as popular as you were, or perhaps it's regulated out of, out of the uh, market. So it's super risky to not um, diversify your, your social media content across many platforms. You know, great point, Dan. I mean, you look at, you know, if you go back 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, your, your, your marketing possibilities in Montreal, you use the Montreal Gazette or the old Montreal Star or the Journal de Montréal. And that was, you know, that was your choice. It, what, it was, you know, print media. So it's the same idea. You wouldn't have advertised only in one market unless you're only going after a particular market. So I, I think the discussion of a social media marketing platform is much more uh, relevant than a TikTok or a Facebook strategy or, or or whatever it is. And I think I dare say that for more my generation, uh, the TikTok strategy in their mind is the equivalent to social media strategy, but just don't necessarily use the right words along the way. Mike, you wanted to bring up free speech as well, because the federal government is going to be regulating social media content to some degree um, in the next little while. And I'll, I'll save you the whole spiel because I have a, a you know a whole lecture on this subject. As a media producer, I have very specific opinions about how to regulate media and really don't think it can be done by government directly. That's a really bad idea um, for both innovation and for free speech. The, the, the ticket here and the system that has to be developed is a industry self-regulatory model. All these social networks have to come together, just like the broadcasters did in the early 90s when there was that social panic over uh, over national uh, broadcast networks. We established a regime. We established a way for the companies to judge uh, themselves and regulate themselves with, with standards and best practices. We established the rating system, G, PG, PG-13, etc. These are all concessions that were made together as a society. But right now, with social networks and politicians uh, who are using them, uh, to their benefit in a very populist uh, and uh, I guess hyped up way, there is no appreciation for coming together at all. And we're becoming more polarized and we're fighting over an issue that I think is pretty not easily solvable, but uh, at least the solutions are are there. I totally agree. I mean, that, that we has to be an, an agreement across the board. The part of the issue and that complicates matters today is that everything that we're referring to, that we referred to in, in, the, in, in your discussion, um, is now such a global standard, right? And this is where the complication comes in to a certain degree. And, you know, you're either going to ban TikTok or you're not going to ban TikTok. I think you're going to have a very hard time regulating, uh, you know, TikTok's influence uh, when you Welcome back to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, showcasing stories China, from outstanding like. business people just to give by you, BDO you know, Canada. My name is Dan Delmont with Mike Newton of BDO. And our guest, let's get right to him. Right it's the first Mike that we delve into the world of theater. This should be really Fun. His name you know, is Olivier Berger. He's the president and CEO uh, you know, of Ceno Plus. Olivier, welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs. Uh, some kind Thank of you know, PG-13 First, tell me uh, real simple, what is Ceno yeah, so uh, people are actually looking at a lot of this and saying, hey, this is, specialized is this really a TikTok issue? Is it a political issue? And how do you regulate something in that kind of environment? I would also note that the Chinese government regulates TikTok more severely for their domestic consumption. So they actually have safeguards in place, especially for children, that limit the amount of time and the type of content and the type of graphic content that they have exposure to. And 
Yeah, we don't get uh, that. If, we get we get you know, the uncensored version. Ones. Well, and, and and that only goes to prove where, where our point. Where do you get involved in the process? Right? I mean, you're, you're, if you're if you're going to control it for yourself and you're just going to let it go out there to everybody else, you got to think there's an ulterior motive to some of this. And you know, you can fall back on protection is protection is only so much before this gets raised in a better context. And I think this is the problem we're going to have with regulating social media. Most of the time, though, there's already been a portion of the land that's been allowed world how the heck are we going to regulate social media content a specific and how number of seeds there well, i'll be ranting about this uh, and we're always up for many years to come right? until it gets done uh, but industry self-regulation uh, during the master planning coming phase, up next mike we're going to talk about the entertainment business and can, uh, a quebec know, success story uh, that started locally and is now all around the world producing the actual physical venues that house entertainment acts like you know service like katie perry and others we'll talk to olivia and is now uh, all yeah, around the world producing the actual physical venues that house entertainment acts like Cirque du Soleil, Katy Perry, and others. We'll talk to Olivier Bertillon-Berger of Sinopus next on Inspiring Entrepreneurs There's nothing we won't take. Well, you take a, an existing theater and redesign. I mean, we've all been to theaters for productions, for shows, and recognize that the acoustics may be a little outdated in some of these venues. Uh, I mean, one of your, your vision on your website is high-quality, cutting-edge entertainment venues that don't sacrifice functionality. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of an insight into, into where that falls into your design process. Yeah, I mean, uh, a retrofit is always uh, more of a challenge, actually, than, than a new building. Uh, we've been lucky enough to, to do one of our own initial designs. So the, for the, the Coliseum in Las Vegas, we designed and built it in 2002, and then uh, we renovated it in 2019. So you're actually more aware of uh, the existing condition. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's like when you buy a house and you start uh, removing the floor and there's another layer of floor or there's a carpet tiles and then you have that wood floor. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's part of uh, the services that we offer. Just gonna say it's it's like the home remodeling tanka yait. While I'm at it, uh, well, let's just let's just keep going and keep modifying as you uncover things, I guess, in in the walls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, to what extent do you want to uh, you know keep what you have uh, and make it better? Sometimes it's almost uh, easier to 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 start from from scratch. Uh, we we've had that uh, with one of our clients where we were so far down into remodeling scenario. Uh, and the increase in, in quality and capacity that they wanted was so big that at some points it's like you're, you're almost like, you know, narrowing the point where you, you want to consider uh, maybe building something new. And when they did the pros and cons, it's OK, let's just go with, with, with your suggestion. But we're never going to, you know, bring it as the first option. But at some point, it's our job to protect our client against themselves and uh, help them you know, find the best uh, entertainment solution uh, for the, the for their needs. So there's designing theaters and venues like that. Tell me some of the other businesses, Olivia, that you tend to work with to create uh, theatrical type environments. Yeah, we, uh, in, in like year 2007, we were approached uh, by a casino promoter and he wanted to create sort of a new kind of casino and make it like really theatrical. So we approached it uh, like we would approach a theater, like trying to make it flexible, uh, functional. You don't have the sort of uh, hard ceiling with the moldings and, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very bright lighting. It was really like open ceiling and you could modulate it. 
uh, and that that was quite interesting. Uh, but but besides that, you know, we're really focused on on uh, entertainment venues, uh, any type of them, but always, you know, for the per thinking about the performers, you know, the professional that are going to work there, so the technician crews, and of course the guests. It, it's interesting if you look in, and I think most people understand the concept, say, of a Vegas residency where a Celine Dion or somebody's going to move in uh, for an extended period of time, and there's a lot of personalization. If the if the theater's already been built, then there's a significant amount of personalization that's going to come into play. How much does the actual artist have in design, or is this a little bit like Rihanna's Super Bowl where uh, Willow Perro and uh, Bruce Rogers did all the creative design? And, and you know, how does that fit in? to how you have to work with with the artist yeah that, that, that's a really good question i mean talking about the permanent residency model it, it's something uh that i like to think that we we, we participated to to create because uh when we did the coliseum in las vegas it was our third uh venue that we were designing in vegas the first two ones were uh, cirque shows so cirque shows were about uh 1500 to almost 2000 seats but the business model is that he, they would perform twice a night, one show at seven and one show at nine. So when Celine uh, came with, with you know, uh, Franco Dragan as her artistic director, it was clear that she couldn't perform twice a night. So we had to find a solution where we could you know, match the same uh, numbers in terms of selling tickets. So we had to make the venue twice bigger. But at that point, there was not that many venues, or I don't think there were, in Vegas with that amount of seat from the jump from 2000 to 4000 uh, was kind of a leap of faith. But, you know, through the years, the model made a name for itself. And now you have more and more of these uh, either, you know, long term or short term permanent resident shows. You have the Dolby Live also. Uh, the Coliseum picked up the model after Celine left and has a bunch of artists, you know, doing shorter stays. And uh, our latest venue uh, that we opened, the uh, Resort World Theater, is all about that. You have uh, Katy Perry, Kerry Underwood, Luke Bryant, and uh, it was supposed to be Celine, but Michael Bublé that are sharing the stage. But to, to go back to your question, yeah, we, we were pretty involved uh, from the start with, with Celine and her production team to incorporate all of her needs uh, in, into the design. For the Coliseum, you know, she wanted to be uh, close, as close as possible to the audience. So instead of going, uh, in depth, we tried to really surround her at the second balcony so that no one would be further than 120 feet. And uh, for Resort World Theater, it was the same production company, AEG, that we had been working with, with Celine. So we were working heavily with, with the people who, whose job is like to convince this, their, these artists to, to come and perform there. So the Resort World Theater is not multi-purpose in the sense that the, the room can do a lot of different programming, but in terms of the type of, of production that you can put it, the stage, scenic machinery, and all that is super flexible. It, it, it's really a, a blank canvas for the artist and the producer, the production team to create, you know, the show that they have in their head and uh, almost without limits. It must be very interesting. I mean, one of the things that you guys talk about is the designing that takes the human experience in, in mind, right? I mean, that's what you want to express. Except we live in such a fast-paced world of been there, done that, that, I mean, are, are, are you constantly required to update what that experience is capable, or is that really the artist's job? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. We have to be aware of, uh, you know, the always evolving uh, technology 
and uh, you know what are the artists' needs? Uh, what are they going to be in five years and ten years? You don't want to invest, you know, I would say a hundred million in a venue that will be outdated in five years. So we leave room for uh, improvement in terms of like the uh, infrastructures or you know to make it easy to improve rather than than to have to you know demolish an entire wall to uh, I'm gonna say something like to to wire a new uh, system or something like that. So we we always make sure that in terms of, of capacity the venue and in capacity I don't mean like seated but like it's not at its limit that that there's room to add like for example. Uh, for for resorts world, there's a, a audio and lighting and video kit that comes with the venue, but it doesn't take you know all the electrical demand. You, so each artist can bring their own stuff and and add to that. But it's more than a basic kit. It's really a top of the line kit. But every artist has their specific needs. And in other venues that we build that are more like roundhouses, uh, where where the the starting kit in terms of audio and video might be more basic. Well, we just leave more room for every artist to bring uh, their own lighting trusses, their own video wall. Uh, but but the infrastructures are always designed to be able to, to, to supply that demand. Olivier, during the pandemic, as all venues, of course, came to a halt. So my the obvious question is, what was your pandemic pivot and how were, how were those first few months? Yeah, it was uh, kind of scary because, you know, it was a pandemic, but it was also, you know, the pivotal transfer from a generation to the other. So we went from, uh, let's say, context where we had a lot of uh, ongoing projects, a lot of future projects coming on. We were preparing the transition. So uh, my brother and I were taking over from my parents. They were still involved in the company, but sort of fading out. And then uh, this happened, right? So you start with the whole uh, remote working and thinking about how are we gonna survive this if, if you know this project stops and this project stops, and thinking about you know the hiring situation and uh, you know, of course, facing tough decision like who who can we keep, who can we let go, and then. Uh, the government comes back with some uh, subsidies program, so that really helped us to, uh, you know, maintain or or core uh, in terms of expertise. Uh, it doesn't mean it didn't mean we had more work to be done. So it, it, that was the toughest part for me to to say, hey, uh, you're going to be working on that and you're going to be staying home and not doing anything, but you're still on the payroll. Like it, it it's hard. Like like a, a poet once said, like paying a man to do nothing is the best way to to kill him. Uh, well, I mean, I sort of felt like that, but, you know, through the whole thing, it, it was very uh, self-teaching moment. Uh, we were lucky enough to have uh, one large project uh, in the U.S. that was already under construction and, you know, they didn't really stop. So the tough part was that we were not able to go on site and travel, So, uh, but, but, but at least it kept us afloat. And then we picked up you know, smaller projects. One of our clients was very aggressive in, in, you know, lining up their ducks to develop new project during the pandemic. So that was a, a big advantage for us. And I I'm going to say like, you know, six months from today, it really started to, to, to pick up to a point where now we're quite busy. We have a bunch of uh, new projects on the starting block, uh, developing all potential new relation with uh, new clients. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it didn't all happen at the same time, like 
that sort of uh, forced pause uh, that, that was created by the pandemic maybe gave uh, my brother and I the time we needed to develop the maturity of transitioning because I studied architecture, right? I'm not a I'm not a, a businessman in the definition of the word. So uh, I had more time to dedicate myself to looking at how the company is run and, and asking myself those kind of questions. But what really drives me is, you know, drawing and designing theaters. So it, it, right now I'm a lot into that, but it's good that I had that opportunity and, and time to sort of uh, settle down on the other portion of my what is my job today. So it actually leads in, Olivia, to a very interesting question. I mean, a lot of times, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs coming out of COVID have said, you know, they've hit this point where, wow, they either learned something new, they modified something within their business that, you know, wasn't all gray and gloomy as we all thought COVID was going to be. There was actually a lot of good things that that, that emerged from that. Um, is, is the business acumen and the learning your pivot point? Or is there anything else from a design perspective or from a creative perspective that really during COVID you had a chance to either modify or, you know, you had an epiphany going, hey, wait a second, we need to be taking this into account. I, I wouldn't talk about an epiphany. Of course, it, you know, the dynamic, the, the, the importance of uh, online meeting, remote work and all that has, has taken over. I personally still believe a lot in in presential and and you know being all in the same room for a brainstorm and and making sure we're all on the same page. But in terms of logistic, uh, of course, we probably travel like twice as less now than we did before the pandemic. So I just had a young daughter like about a year and a half ago. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, it, it gave me the time you know time to to, to spend with her while she's growing. Uh, but now that it's picking up, you know, I'm not I'm not going to be nostalgic about uh, that time uh, during the pandemic. But, yeah, it it, it was more like a, an introspection and, and it gives us maybe the opportunity to focus more on, on what are our values uh, rather than just, you know, bring business to the table. And, uh, cause, you know, we're, we're I think all entrepreneurs are in business to do business, but there's something that that's. The first part, why would you create your own business? It's to do something, to do something you're passionate about. And, and it, it really, you know, enforced the notion that I'm really passionate about what I'm doing. And I, I'm not ready to uh, just start doing something else because uh, of, of whatever happens uh, outside of Sino Plus. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people coming up COVID, of, of, I think there's two points you made that are very valid. One is if you were an in-person type of person before COVID, I can guarantee you you're twice as much an in-person person today. Uh, if you were looking for a reason to to work from home or to be remote before COVID started, you also were given the the holy grail of excuses to to continue to work in that environment. So that's 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 changed a lot. It's interesting though with the the conversation with a young child, and this really has come out on many many occasions for a lot of people that would have been on the road significantly uh, that had young children. It's given them mm -hmm. an opportunity to to really experience something that a lot of not a lot of entrepreneurs were were capable of doing before COVID. Yeah. So and, it's it, yeah, and so and I think the one of the things let, let let's move over let let's shift a little bit here into family business dynamics. Uh, for though you know this is radio, so nobody can see, but uh, you know the family business has been around for thirty five years. I can pretty much guarantee, looking at you, Olivia, you have not been running the family business for thirty five years. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you've transitioned uh, from your parents to your brother. 
in uh, yourself. And it, this is this is a lot of times kind of the breaking point for a lot of businesses. Um, was there a plan in place when you guys decided to transition? Was this a very kind of formalized uh, approach or was it, you know, your parents woke up one day and said, you know what, guys, it's time to take over? No, no, it, it was, uh, there was a plan. I mean, uh, we are working with a consulting firm that specializes in, uh, you know, family-owned business transition because in a lot of cases, you think it's just going to happen and uh, either the you know, the, the, the new generation or the people who are in place uh, inside the business for a while are, are not prepared or, or they, they don't have a training to how it's going to happen, then there's a lot of uh, chance that it's going to fail. Uh, so we were working with, with them maybe a year prior, uh, a year and a half prior to the pandemic. And it, it, it was part of a plan, but the pandemic did, you know, force that transition to happen faster. Uh, one reason, you know, being the whole remote versus in presence, if I'm an in-presence person, my father, I can assure you, is like 10 times more of an in-presence person than you. And every time we, we still have, you know, uh, uh, board meetings uh, together uh, because, you know, they're not involved day to day, but they, they still have uh, an, an idea of what's going on and they uh, play an advisory role to my brother and I. Uh, but he says, guys, I don't know how you're doing. Like with those uh, two days where people are working from home, like how can you know what they're doing? It's like that. It's okay. Just that that that's one of the reasons like that this happened. But it's also a bit sad because it happened in a moment where we couldn't be all there and make it like significant uh, as a, as significant as a transition uh, as we wanted. It kind of forced them out, and that's something like that I would like to have done differently. But this is what it is. And uh, it, it was already, you know, the, the gears were already moving uh, when it happened. So it, it's it's not as bad as, uh, you know, it wasn't in a flash either. Real quick, Olivier, a dispute resolution. If you and your family members are deadlocked, how do you get out of it? Oof, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, I mean, it was tougher, I think, when we were, all the four of us, involved equally. Now that they sort of stepped out, you know, we can disagree, but they leave it, they leave it to us to make the, the, the final decision. Uh, it, it's also, you know, the family dynamic has to play like that. Everyone's character is different. Uh, but, but if I can say my dad was always the real entrepreneur, like started his business and he wanted to do one thing and nothing else. And whatever people were saying to him, he was very focused. I uh, wouldn't hesitate to, you know, uh, step on, on, on people's head. And I'm not saying like here in Sino Plus, but like when you're working internationally with, you know, uh, high level uh, client and designer uh, that I've seen other, why, why would I hire a company from Montreal to build my theater? Uh, and he came, we, we came in like uh, in Vegas with the Cirque, Cirque du Soleil and then sort of emancipated uh, from them. So he had to have that sort of... Uh, He's going to hate me for it, but shark mentality. Type A personalities. Type A yeah. personalities. Yeah, that, that my brother and I don't necessarily have. But, you know, having spent 15 years uh, designing theaters, I'm in control of my subject. And, and that's what shows. And I'm still the guy behind the computer who can, like, validate whether or not we can, uh, you know, raise that level by 1.5 meter? Can we move those VIP here and there? Can we add five, 500 more people? So I have that 
that uh, proximity with the, the work that's being done. And I think in-house, uh, when we have like staff meeting and we're working on producing a presentation document, I know the tools they're going to use. I know the steps that are involved. So uh, I'm able to uh, inspire uh, re respect and rather than commend it. And I think that's one key point. Uh, and, and, and going back to your question, or I don't know if it's going back to it, but one of the other thing was like working with people that are like 15 years older, 10 years older than you. And one, one, one day you just like, you become their boss. Uh, that was something that we prepared also with that consulting firm. And now those people, they're, they're the pillars of the company really with Vincent and I. So uh, they, they have a, a role that goes beyond the role of, of, uh, of an employee. I will just to finish this off, Dan, I will say, Olivier, we could have an entire show on that discussion of taking over with the people that are significantly older than you and have been around. And how do you generate respect and how do you generate tolerance and understanding in a multi-generational environment if they're not even your family and, and they've been you know, loyal to your parents for so many years and you come in as the kid? You know, how do you how do you move into that role? So I'm sure that was uh, that's always a challenge in any business. And, and I would think even more so in the type of business that you're in. Well, I think uh, if I can just speak briefly to that, the key was like the first 15 year uh, starting, you know, from the bottom and making my my, uh, you know, sharp, sharpening my tools and for them to see by their own that I can bring something to the table. That really helped me because uh, I, I they knew that I the role I, I play in the company is important. So it's not just like, hey, from now it's going to be, uh, you know, Olivier that's going to be in charge. It, it was. And it, it was never like openly out there, but everybody, I guess, kind of knew it. Our guest, Olivier Bertrand-Berger, president and CEO of Sinoplus, and we'll have his one piece of advice to inspire entrepreneurs in just a few minutes. But first, let's get to our expert, Peter Joseph Moretis, tax partner at BDO Canada. It is tax season, March, of course, and we'll have lots more in the coming weeks. But let's begin, Mike, with trust deadline. And this applies specifically to family business. And of course, uh, welcome back, Peter. Thanks, Dan, for having me on. Yeah, so when I when I thought of uh, the guest Olivier and his family, and we're right in the middle of March, which is a a busy tax deadline for uh, for trusts, um, I thought it was something good that we could talk about. So um, any trusts that are created are automatically uh, required to have a um, a December year end, and they have 90 days to file which um, depending on whether it's a leap year ends up being March 30th or 31st. So uh, it's a very short, short time frame. And um, like, of course, uh, trust is something that we hear a lot about in the news, but in the family business and uh, the privately held companies, it's, it's a very uh, valuable tool um, that could be used to structure uh, the, the ownership of a business. Um, so a family trust usually involves um, uh, an estate freeze, where where we determine what the value of the business of the of the business is uh, from the older generation, the founders, um, where they would go and freeze their interests that they hold directly as owners of the corporation, and the family trust will be introduced as um, an entity, a separate entity that would hold the shares that would grow in value. There's like many different benefits. One of the benefits is that a family trust on an exit of the company uh, allows the, uh, the ability to multiply the capital gains exemption. So in Canada, on a sale of a privately held uh, business, 
the first approximately uh, almost a million dollars now is uh, tax-free. It's something that's um, uh, it's like a policy from finance to kind of promote entrepreneurships. And uh, a trust is able to allocate proceeds of the sale, the future growth to, to different family members, uh, whether they're in the business or not. And uh, if they receive the proceeds from it, they, they would be tax-free. So interesting though, Pete, because you know one of the things that, that people don't always recognize is the discretionary ability of, of the trusts, which if I go back to your, your, your discussion of multiplicational capital gains exemption, uh, means that you can flow it out to family, many family members. Now, that also includes minor children, children under 18 years old. So this, if you have a family trust that has yourself and your spouse and your three kids in it, uh, you can basically you know, move around $5 million worth of capital gains under the, under the proper scenario. Uh, sounds great, but it's not so simple when it comes to trying to pass that on to the, to the kids because there are a few rules you've got to look out for. Correct. No, like it's the, um, what's really, like that scenario works, which is why we kind of also, like as soon as there are other family members, it starts to become something to consider. But it is something that that's got to be money that it will be like credited to them and owed to those kids, even though they're minors and something that, you know, most likely will just be invested for their future. Uh, and that's like where the term trust fund baby kind of comes out a lot in, in the news where it is money that needs to be with them. Um, but it does allow um, flexibility uh, when there's not a sale, which is kind of like um, in situations where Sinoplus, it gives the ability where you don't know which child is maybe older or not. What do they want to be in the business? Do they change their mind? That's why, like one of the biggest um, benefits from a tax point of view, a transition is shares that are held by a family trust have the, like you're saying, the discretion um, to be allocated, distributed without any tax consequences to those children at a certain time. And in the proportions that are, that, that are determined at that time in the future, you know, based on how things have evolved uh, in the business. Um, so it could be that, you know, for the time being, until there's a full transition uh, let, let finalized, they're held in this family trust. Um, and all the increase in value that would have been, uh, had a higher tax consequence if they were still held by the founder are now distributed to the younger generation um, without any tax implications. But I think the the important element for our, our listeners to understand is is again that key word of discretionary. Even on the capital gains exemption, uh, that ability to pass it around. Use my example of you know the your spouse and your three children. You do not have to allocate that capital gain to a child. I mean, this is really where uh, the functionality and and I guess the fluidity of cash flow is an important element for the beneficiary. Uh, sorry, or the, more the executors on the trust to determine where those funds get distributed for various reasons. Correct. Like the actual founders could remain beneficiaries as well. And sometimes, you know, there might be an exit too early. There might be the, um, the amount that's actually sold is maybe uh, not enough for what the person needs for retirement and, you know, not in the position to have that money parked in a, in a trust or, or in a, a child's name for the next 15 years. So 100 percent, there's that flexibility. Um, so this is trust deadline, and there's one thing. On a couple of shows ago, uh, our colleagues uh, Julie Cote uh, was discussing um, uh, a new tax for residential properties, and I really wanted to just bring this up because this one percent tax on unused properties was something that was really meant to be focused from 
non-residents or non-citizens. It's really like to kind of lower the the speculation involved in the market. But um, there is a, a form that's that's issued uh, that needs that, that needs to be filed by April 30th. And despite the fact that there are um, there you can have a family trust or even a Canadian corporation uh, that is completely only Canadian trustees and beneficiaries under the way under the current rules. Uh, those entities, if they own a home, if they own a condo, if they own uh, any plex that's under four units, they're required to file this form, even though they're exempt from any of the tax. And there are penalties for this form if they're not filed. So this is kind of something that we're, the form was only uh, released, uh, I think, uh, five or six weeks ago. And uh, it's something that everybody who kind of owns any residential property, even if it's rented or even if it's, uh, you know, they're completely Canadian, it's something that's going to need to be um, to be considered. So another another potentially well thought out idea that was not executed so well. That doesn't sound like anything that we're used to around here. <laughs> Correct. Anyway, Pete, uh, again, great uh, great subject, great topic on on the, somewhere between the, the the trust deadlines on the technical with a really practical approach on the discretionary and the multiplication of cap gain. So uh, thanks thanks a lot. Now we'll let you get back to work so you can you can do all of these trusts that you have to get out by the end of the month. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Peter Joseph Moretta's tax partner at FL. He's already turned around and started typing away. And yeah. He's back to work already. I think he just ignored us, Dan. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. All right. And as we come to the end of our show, let's turn to our entrepreneur, Olivier Bertillon-Berger, president and CEO of Plus, and ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs, Olivier. Yeah, I mean, uh, when, when, when you ask yourself, why did you become an entrepreneur? Uh, I guess, you know, further than uh, having a business model and, and being uh, able to, to keep it up. Uh, it's not losing sight of why you're doing that. Like what, why, what, what made you start that business and try to hold on to that? Uh, you have to be passionate about it. It's not just about you know, making money uh, because I think that's the best way to be uh, very unhappy. Uh, and I would say also you know, to, to follow your instincts uh, there's a reason why you did this and no one else did, uh, and and you have to hold on to that, uh, and and don't don't second guess yourself. I mean, listen, but uh, you know, in the end, you're responsible for the decision you make, and you're gonna make the right decision for yourself and for your business. And uh, you know, the last one may be a little bit corny, but is is keep enjoying what you're doing, keep, keep having fun. Uh, you know, whether it's being the entrepreneur or doing the work that that made you become an entrepreneur, you have also to hold on to that uh, because you know we we're, we don't work to be happy. We're happy and then we have to work, but it, it's not. It can be uh, what's fueling your happiness. Uh, there, there's bigger things than work in life, uh, even if it's part of it. So I guess that would be about it. Awesome. Thanks, Olivier. And, and Mike, a great plucky Quebecois company that is uh, that made the case uh, due to their passion, their competence, that they belong on the international stage. Most definitely. I think we forget, you know, we talk many times on, on this show about the technology in, in, in Quebec and in Montreal. Uh, you know, we have a very, very influential art uh, 
component around the world. And yes, you'll think of Cirque du Soleil and you'll think of Céline. But, you know, when you think about it, it's guys like Olivier and his family who are the backbone behind that might not get the press, but continue to show really how strong uh, and how forth, uh, forthcoming and forward thinking uh, Quebec continue is on, on, continues to be on an international scale. Olivier Bertillon Berger, President and CEO of Sinoplus, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. And Mike, next week we have a very interesting guest. We'll be chatting with Franz Saint-Elemy. He's the CEO of LetterTech and also the Chancellor of Université de Montréal, as well as the founder of Groupe 3737, which is an incubator for black entrepreneurs. And so Chancellor Saint-Elemy is with us next week. A reminder, you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website, inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com, for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles. See you back here next week. Talk.